any views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and not of their employer. Welcome to the Adam Adam Podcast, episode 101, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm John. I'm Stu. And I'm Jerry. In this episode, we talk about Rancher. We talk about Puppet. Talk about Proxmox. And we also talk about tech products we like. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. So, hello everybody again. Sorry for the kind of break in service. Uh, we are back. We won't be kind of doing the predictions for last year. We'll wait and probably till the end of the year when we do that. Apologies again for that. So, what have people been up to then since we have been on the hiatus? Well, uh, I have started a new job. Um, I was previously working for a large cloud company and am not anymore. Uh, I'm now working for a ticketing company, which uh, I'm not going to go into too many more details than that. But um, yeah, the change of role, uh, the previous role I was in was a technical account manager. And uh, I I found that I I, I really needed to get back to kind of my coding roots. So I am back to doing uh, technically uh, an, an SRE role. Um, but, uh, I've only been there a sort of couple of months. And so we're still kind of ramping up to, uh, kind of introducing some more of the, uh, 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 um, uh, I'd like to say friend of the show, Martin Wimpress, uh, refers to SRE as being, uh, DevOps in hard mode. So, um, we're not quite at that point yet. I think the company has aspirations to be there. So, um, but yeah, we're doing, we're doing, uh, I'm back to doing Terraform and uh, infrastructure as code in the autom- on sort of the automation side of things. So we're doing Puppet, um, which I know that I know that somebody wants to talk about a bit later on. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's good being back in a technical role. Uh, so let's see, uh, Stu, what have you been up to? Uh, so I've been in the same job for a year now, which is um, you know good for me, given how many times I've changed in the past. Um, but yeah, as John was saying about the SREs like DevOps in hard mode, yeah, I um, am in a role which is SRE and trying to get teams to op- op- adopt something called service level objectives. That alone is huge in trying um, trying to get people to change the way of thinking on. So yeah, it is hard and it's more hard based upon the people than the actual technical side, just in terms of changing culture and changing opinions. So basically what we've been doing for the past year um so yeah not not a lot else from me same old same old actually jerry yeah so i've been uh I've, well i've actually just finished up a, a contract with um, a company that also does tickets maybe maybe not the same kind of tickets as as john john's uh, employer um so in that position i was using rancher uh, quite a fair amount and vSphere uh, so it's, it's sort of private cloud and and rancher and kubernetes and that was all good fun uh, but it's now finished so uh, uh i'm actually i'm actually on the market as we speak as we record so uh um yeah um so that's interesting <laughs> um and yeah so that that's that's kind kind of what i've been doing for the literally for the last six months since we probably since the last time we, we recorded what's rancher then so Rancher is a, it's kind of a management system for Kubernetes. The way you deploy it is you have what's, what's called an upstream cluster. So it's, it's a Kubernetes cluster, which is running the Rancher server component, um, just, just as Kubernetes pods. Um, and that manages that, that, uh, gives you a GUI, uh, quite a nice GUI actually, um, which, um, you can then use to, deploy other kubernetes clusters um it also gives you an api um uh, and they provide they provide a, ter- a terraform provider um to speak to that api uh, and you can bring, bring up clusters that way so um that's that's what i was working on main mainly work on the getting the upstream cluster to come up on vSphere um in a kind of repeatable way using terraform um and then well, I spent a good a, a good uh, while using Terraform to bring up downstream clusters for for um, for, for technical reason, which I may go into. Um, but then switched over to the using the Rancher provider um, to do that. Um, so yeah, it, it all works very well. Um, like I say, the the GUI is nice. Um, 
one issue that I came across is is that GUI because you can use it to deploy your pods and 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 do your deployments in in on on these downstream clusters. Um, but what that leads to is things is that that Kubernetes configuration ending up not in code anywhere or not committed as code anywhere. So, um, you know, it's it's that that classic thing of um, people going in and tweaking things and no one knows how how it it's it works because um, it, it hasn't it's not in code. So, yeah, so it's an upside and a downside. I would say you have to be quite disciplined about. Um, making sure your deployments are committed somewhere and uh, uh, ideally gone through some CI process like we've discussed in the past. Um, the docs for Rancher are not great. They do they do the job, but they're quite sort of disconnected and they tell you how to do certain things and not other things, um, which was a bit of a pain. And that said, what, what Rancher would probably say is that they're open source and you, if, if they're... Uh, if you don't like them, you can, or if you don't, if they, if they're not up to scratch, you can go in and edit them yourself. Uh, effectively, Rancher are are owned by SUSE, um, the uh, famous um, Linux distribution uh, company uh, from Germany. We to to begin with at the start of the contracts, we had a, a consultant who's very very good, very knowledgeable, uh, and provide he provided a lot of the Terraform code to get the upstream cluster going dare i say it i I improved that terraform code by quite a lot because that's what i was being paid to do um so i like to think i left a left that then with a a a good code base um and the the company that i was working for um paid for support uh i think i think quite high level and that is that that support is very good as well. I, I I was on a call with one of the support people for best part of a day, uh, and you know we fixed the problem. He identified some issues with, um, I think, with the Terraform provider as well. So that was really good. Yeah, I mean it, it's it, it's definitely worth a look at if you're running Kubernetes. I, I would say, and you want to kind of get Kubernetes up and running quickly and easily. Yeah, I'd give it a go. Um, we, I said we were running on vSphere. It can be used to, it, it can be run on other cl- uh, on public cloud providers, for instance. The the way it has like a provisioner, so the the downstream clusters are provisioned using Rancher, but so that there's like a vSphere one, a AWS one, DigitalOcean, uh, Azure, and so on. So uh, it's pretty good like that. Um, I, I think you. You'd use it in place of something like EKS or AKS if you were doing it that way. Um, yeah, so it's really good. Um, if, if anyone has any questions about it, um, I'll try and answer them. <laughs> I was going to actually say, I, I take it then the infrastructure, especially with it being vSphere, is mostly all on-premises stuff rather than any cloud-based um, clusters? Yeah, so so their, their client was uh, running it in it, on-prem as well, so... Yeah, so that that was the reason for going with vSphere. How would you compare it to using something like, let, let's take EKS or AKS or what, one of them where you've got some of the more managed components and then you can involve things like load balancing. How you know how did uh, how did you overcome stuff like that in terms of getting? Yeah, like um, if you're on prem, it's not going to automatically spin up a load balancer in front kind of thing because there's just not the capability to do that. How were you taking care of that kind of thing? Well, we didn't actually get get as far as that, so we we were running microservices. So they, those kind of primitives were not used. So I can't I can't answer that unfortunately. I've only used AKS in the past, and I would say that it's a good deal less complicated than AKS right. uh, in my experience uh, to get something up and running. Because you don't, well, I, obviously, I think vSphere was probably part of that. You, you're not dealing with the kind of IAM or um, uh, AAD in Azure, the, the um, kind of cloud permission type stuff, um, which which de- that was part of the complexity in, in AKS, for sure. Yeah, so so that's me. Um, have we done out? Or? Yeah, so I've been playing with uh, Pulumi quite a bit. So my C sharp code is they're doing with C sharps. 
interesting. Um, and Bob, I've been doing quite a lot with Puppet on Windows. Basically, I don't really do. I haven't. Don't, I, I wasn't involved with setting up anything with it. It, but it does. I don't know. It works. Yeah, Windows. Um, so I'm basically just configuring. Is it? Is it called the manifest files? Mm. Which I think is like the config um, file. Because I'm basically just using Ansible, which is Ansible. You, you, you write the code and then you push the Ansible code to the VM or whatever you're doing. It's normally for SSH, isn't it? Or um, in Windows, it's uses. I can't think what I'm forgot it is now. What they use? WinRM. That's it. WinRM. Oh, yeah. um, which is good. But obviously, with Puppet, I think it it polls the server every thirty minutes to download if that's configured yeah. correctly. So. We our machines all matter when they get joined to the main. They get the puppet agent installed, and then we every thirty minutes the puppet manifest. I'm guessing that gets downloaded and then deployed. Is that how is that how it works? I don't. That's what I was going to ask you guys, kind of how it works. Because all I've been doing is like uh, the way that the scenes be the way I've been set up is that um, um, they have manifest files where like it's written, it's written in Ruby, isn't it? Which is quite nice. So I know Ruby quite well, and like it's like the Ruby it uses a lot of have you guys been using they seem to be like using lighting classes so well, a lot of the classes they get references from one thing to another kind of thing to get different components installed yeah it's it's been a while since i've last used puppet but yeah that is um it, it was my last role that did it and um yeah it was interesting to get used to especially from coming from something like ansible um before but yeah the the, the classes, getting your head around them to begin with is in, uh, can take a little bit of time, but they do help a lot in yeah. terms of, you know, um, not repeating yourself and that kind of thing, the whole dry yeah. approach. Um, so, yeah, the, um, and the whole po- the agent polling back to the server. I believe what, what you said was true. It, it polls the server, it gets the code from there, and then it runs it locally. Um, basically, yes. the puppet server is effectively almost like a HTTP endpoint for it, and it's just grabbing stuff from it's it. It's literally what yeah. it is, yeah. So, so yeah, it's uh, the server, yes, it's managing quite a few things, but actually it's the clients, well, no, sorry, not the clients, the agents that are doing most of the work at this point. So, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. an, it's an interesting way, especially if you've come from the whole Ansible where it's all driven by a machine or machines talking to it. It's actually the way around. The agents are, are polling and then doing stuff based upon what's changed. Mm-hmm. So we're using Puppet at the place that I'm working at at the moment. And... um yeah, there is a so the thing that I've found most interesting with Puppet um, is that uh, it's more declarative, so it's more like Terraform. Yeah, in the way that you kind of visualize how things are being deployed. Um, so you say, I want these five things to be done, and these three things have got dependencies on the other two. Um, so the Puppet agent figures out what order it can do stuff in. Yeah, it's kind of it's like a desired state kind of thing, isn't it? Rather than yes. a, do this, then do this, then do this. Indeed, the way that um, so my current boss had a he's he's not really used much of Ansible, and he kind of said, "Look, you know, I was looking at Ansible, and it just feels like it's 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 almost like somebody decided they wanted to write a really complicated Bash script." So, you know, you do this thing and then you do that thing with Ansible, whereas this, we just say what we want to happen and it just happens. I have found myself actually, it might just be the things that I'm doing in Puppet at the moment, but I'm actually kind of enjoying the simplicity of of Puppet Mm -hmm. compared to Ansible's kind of having to think about, you know, oh, I need this role and that role and, you know, this role calls that thing and that role calls something else. You know, you kind of get into these situations. So, I mean, again, I don't know if it's just the complexity of the way that I write write Ansible, but, you know, with Ansible, when I started at this company, it's the first job that I've had where I've gone in and started with a Linux machine. So the first thing I did when I got there was like, right, okay, what things do I need to install? Um, Because the team is split uh, Linux and Mac most of the people currently use Mac and the people that don't use Macs are, I wouldn't say gray beards, but they've been using Linux for long enough that they don't really think about building Linux machines 
as you would a server. Yeah. But so the first thing that I did when I got there was like, right, okay, um, I want to be able to destroy and rebuild my laptop really quickly uh, because it's the first time I've used Linux in a, as, as, a, as my development machine. I don't want to be getting any downtime because my machine's broken for whatever reason. So I wrote all of the tools that we use uh, is deployed with, with Ansible. And a lot of the tools that we're using, because again, we're using Kubernetes, um, we're using all sorts of, we're using K9S, which is new to me and things like that. Um, and some of these things are just GitHub down, GitHub downloads. So I've ended up writing a helper role that pulls down a GitHub binary, a GitHub released binary and turns it into a Debian package and installs the Debian package so that I know that that's where it's come from because that's the way that one of my colleagues likes to deploy all the software into his machine. So I just followed that, that methodology. But yeah, so again, the, the, the way that I would write that in stuff in Ansible is I end up with loads and loads and loads of modules that are calling other modules, not modules, roles, roles. Yeah. loads of roles that are calling other roles. And so effectively a role is just, here's a series of tasks in a modular form with here's any files, any, any templates, any um, additional modules that it needs to be able to run those things. Here's some default values. Here's some fixed values, you know, and it, it kind of build, you build everything into like a prepackaged lump that you can install. But I'm up to like 70 roles just for deploying my laptop because each software piece, every each piece of software that I'm installing, because so many of them come from GitHub repositories as, you know, download this one go binary yeah. that aren't packaged anywhere else, or we'll need the, we need a specific version. You know, they just all end up in this, in each one being a separate role so that I can test it and deploy it separately. Anyway, this is straying very far away from the puppet side of things. When I was starting to do the puppet stuff, absolutely, it, it made life. It's it's a much simpler way of doing things because you just say, "I need this file here and that file there," and yeah, and this file needs to have this this stuff in it. The only thing that I'm finding a little bit odd is how it does variable handling, because so there's um I, I don't know if it was the same when you were looking at, at puppets, Stu, um, or if it's indeed how how you're doing it in your place, Al, but um. There's this thing called PD, PDK, the Puppet Development yeah. Kit, which is a little bit like, if I understand it right, a little bit like Ansible Galaxy Create. So you can kind of create a class and all the things that you need to do to make that class work. So you get like a vagrant file in there to be able to test it and you get, you know, a whole load of Git ignore, you know, you Git ignore files and you get... Travis, you know, your CICD stuff, it's all kind of built into this one file, this one kind of way of deploying stuff. And I'm not really sure, particularly for the way that we're using Puppet, that we need we need quite so much scaffolding. Yeah. So the one one thing I found um, at my last place that was using it quite often, what we'd just go is, you know, I've got a role or a module that is very, very similar to this. I'll just take that and just tweak it and then and then get there. What it means is if you've got a mistake that's in the very first one, it, it will pass through about 20 different iterations and still have that mistake there. Mm. But generally, most of the modules that worked, you just went, you know what, that's good enough. I only need something that's a bit different from this one. I'll take that. I'll make the changes that I need. Building the, ba the basics that you need to create a puppet module wasn't that difficult it didn't need that much scaffolding but yeah i mean it i, I suppose in the same way you know an ansible galaxy role you know you could sit there and create the directories yourself or you could use the command yes you've got a load of extraneous files that you probably don't need but it's easier than remembering which ones you do need sometimes so yeah it's it, it you know it, it's probably possibly even worth doing something like a um i don't know whatever the equivalent is for creating the module run that and then have a script that goes in and gets rid of the stuff that you definitely aren't going to need kind of thing just to remove it and then go from there but yeah i don't know don't know either but yeah so so is there anything specific that you're looking for al or is it just kind of a bit of a conversation around the subject. Yeah, just a conversation around the subject, really. What's the kind of... Is it, I'm guessing it's partly open source, but I'm guessing there's like extra features if you go, if you pay for it, I'm guessing. 
So we have Puppet Enterprise and effectively all that I can really see that that brings you, obviously you get support with that, but the other thing that it gives you is a web interface. So you can see which deploys have failed and which ones have succeeded. You can see how many machines are, have been deployed to. It was a thing that you could get Puppet for AWS, which was effectively on-demand pricing. So if you had a machine that was running for two hours, you would only be billed for that two hours of Puppet license. I have not yet seen whether Puppet do similar pricing outside of AWS. I do wonder whether AWS have just said, you know, we want you to be flexible. Unfortunately, AWS and Puppet, or Perforce rather, who create Puppet, have gone their separate ways. As of as of the 31st of March, you cannot get AWS-enabled Puppet Enterprise Server, which is a bit annoying. Does it still use M-Collective? Because that was um, something that Puppet Enterprise did back in the day that that's kind of open source Puppet didn't. Uh, and as I understand it, I mean, I never got much into it, but M Collective was a way of, it was basically using a message queue to or, to do orchestration because we talked about how uh, the agent pulls the server and then the agents configure the the uh, machines themselves. Um, that can We've talked about this in previous podcasts. That can be quite unpredictable as to when your machine gets configured, you know, when, when it runs the agents and, and so on. So I think M Collective was a way of um, orchestrating that or, or making it happen on demand kind uh, of thing. Yeah, I don't remember my last place using that, but I don't believe they had Puppet Enterprise anyway. I think they were Puppet Open Source, and they had, I can't remember the application that it was, but someone did find basically a a web interface that at least showed you some Puppet stats and things like that. It wasn't a you know all singing or dancing one, but it had enough there to just say, yeah, something's broken, here's some of the logs kind of thing. Um, weirdly, I think they got it integrated into a Foreman as well, which I believe Foreman yeah. is based upon Puppet, or at least has some link into it, so they had some of that going on. Yeah, that's the thing that people have said to me, is that Foreman is the, the tool to use if you're not using... Puppet Enterprise. Yeah. I've had a quick look for M Collective, and it's a class that you can get from Puppet Forge, but I wouldn't know why you would use that versus anything else. So mm. I don't know. I think a lot of the reporting stuff is just done over HTTP mm. or HTTPS rather. Um, one interesting thing that I did find with Puppet is that um, they effectively run their own PKI. So your puppet master, if I don't know whether they still call it that, um, the puppet, oh no, puppet server, sorry, uh, is effectively a PKI server, uh, and all the machines that connect to it have a client certificate that is signed by the puppet server. So you know all the machines that are in your estate because they are the ones that have got the certificate signed by the puppet server. Yeah, interestingly, there's a couple couple of things i'm going to say about that one of them is you can actually set puppet to auto accept from certain I think it might be certain domains or something like that so if you know it's going to be coming from a certain range or a certain domain name or something you can auto accept you know rather than waiting i don't know let's say we were running on aws or azure or something you got a load of machines spinning up and they can't actually spin up and finish spinning up until the puppet's accepted and it's ran, but it can't do that until someone goes into the puppet server and enables it. There's a way of auto-accepting that. What was also going to say is Salt is very similar to this as well, um, in that you have that key mechanism, but you can also auto-accept based upon IP ranges, domains, um, something they call grains, which is kind of like a... Um, Almost a bit like an Ansible facts, but ones that you're static and set set based upon your know, like like a role a server has. If it has a certain role, it can auto accept it. So Salt, I think, basically what Salt did was take some of the lessons from Ansible, some of the lessons from Puppet, and try and mash them together. And there's some good stuff in there. But there's also bits when I was working Puppet, going, "Hmm, be nice if Salt had this." However, there are some things mm. that in Puppet when I was working with it thinking, it'd be nice if I could just apply this right now and see if it works and Puppet and without actually logging into a server and just going, right, okay, run the agent right the second, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't yeah. always tell. And that, that was one of the biggest issues I had with Puppet is 
sometimes they're waiting around and find out later it's broken rather than actually I've <laughs> I've broken it now I can fix it now. You, you could always use Ansible to run Puppet. Yes, yeah, we we did do that sometimes actually, which is an interesting way of having to go about it. But yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that is one of the nice things that Salt did have is because there's the Salt they, they call it master. It's it's kind of the same thing as the Puppet server you have the list of nodes that are registered with it and they're talking via... I um, can't remember the queuing mechanism it uses in the background, but... Um, Zero MQ. That's the one, yeah. And that one, you can then... You know whether nodes are there responding or not, but there's still an agent that's doing the work when you want it to. But there's also an ongoing check of, well, how many have registered in the past, however long. Oh, that one's disappeared. I need to go do something about it. And you can do some monitoring based upon it. The problem I always found with Puppet is if something's not registered for a while, that it's hard to know that there's a problem other than it didn't talk, you know, the agent didn't register, but it might be because there's a firewall rule in place. It might be because the machine's disappeared kind of thing. You wouldn't know for a while kind of thing, whereas at least if there's that ongoing communication, you'd know kind of thing. So, yeah, that is one, one thing that always annoyed me with Puppet a little bit. This one thing to mention about the um, the kind of architecture is uh, as well. So a client I had uh, had was using Salt purely because a lot of his stuff was behind firewalls. So the agents were were reaching out to his server, which is he can obviously set up to accept communication from the agents. Um, if you're if you've got a, somewhere you're running Ansible from, you need to poke a hole in the firewall uh, potentially to to talk to something that you want to run Ansible on. So that's a kind of architectural thing that things like Puppet and Salt are uh, more suited to. Mm. I think there is something called Ansible Pull, though, isn't there, which you could kind of do the same thing, but then it starts to turn yeah. it into more of like an agent-based Ansible anyway, at which point, yeah, I, I don't know how well that works. Ansible Pull effectively does a Git fetch. Right. So you need to have some sort of Git repository around for it to be able to not well doesn't necessarily need to be git repository but yeah effectively it needs to know where to get the 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 configs from and that's typically a git repository and you'd have to set up um you know accepting the key and and all that stuff i suppose if you're trying to contact a git repo from a yeah you know uh not necessarily i mean yeah in theory yes in the same way that you would have to define what your puppet server was for example. True, yeah. One of the things that you could conceivably do is just push that set of files into into the machine using your cloud in it mm. when you stand the machine up or pre-bake it into your, you know, your Packer image or something. So, Yeah, I, I suppose that is one thing I was going to mention earlier is uh, when you were talking about the bringing up the laptop with Ansible. That's actually... One of the things I've always found is Ansible's really great at getting something set up for the first time. But then after that, it can be a bit more difficult, I've found, which I've found Ansible absolutely wonderful for things like cloud in it, for things like getting a laptop set up in the first place. But then if you want it to be managed ongoing, you've then got to think about, all right, okay, what happens if I want to remove that? Um, right, I base, Sometimes it's easy to actually just go into a box and remove the directory than it is to build a role to do that for a remove version or something. So, yeah, um, I, I, that's that's where I think the agent stuff... I don't want to say it's better than Ansible, but it's where I've preferred it in that sense of ongoing management. I prefer something with an agent because then, yeah, it kind of does the... gets to the end, does the desired state rather than think of every single thing that mu- you might need to take into account when adding or deleting something. So, yeah. Yeah, that's what I had in my old place. We used to basically we built the VM and then we installed Windows, then we run Ansible on it, just to reconfigure it to a certain state so we could then deploy code to yeah. it. But we'd never be able to run it again because it would just wipe it all off mm. again. So we're like, with Puppet, yeah, you just say I want this state with this screw using chocolate. You can say I want all these packages installed and it goes and does it for you. So I have a workaround for that. So one of the things that I'm doing with this Ansible install script is the first thing that each of these roles does is checks whether the thing that it wants to install is there. Mm-hmm. So it would do something like 
uh, so this is on a Linux box, but presumably you could do something similar on Windows. You know, if so, the it will run the command command minus v. Yeah. So command is a bash command or a, a shell command that tells that says whether or not the command exists. So if it's in your path, it will return to say yes, this file exists. Um, so, I, so for example, when I was in, when I installed uh, K9s, for example, the first thing it does is it says com- uh, command minus v K9s and re- records whether that's there. And then I have a block after that which says if K9 if that uh, command minus v K9s returned uh, return code of zero, which means it passed, then you don't need to install it. And I also have another block which says. So effectively, it says if it's if it's RC zero, or false, F O R C E, not F A L S E, false equals true, then install it, and then I have a separate one for the config file. So if install if if false config is true, then it does the configuration re reconfiguration. Quick shout out for K9s. I think we probably, I've probably mentioned it on the podcast before. It's it's just a, a nice CLI GUI for Kubernetes, uh, and it's much easier than using kubectl. So uh, yeah, I recommend that if you're playing with Kubernetes. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people in um, one of the teams I've worked with um, at my place, and yeah, they would rather use K9s over kubectl. I mean. I've been using kubectl for years, so I actually fought, and also use ZSH as my shell with auto-completion, and it just means that it actually completes everything out for me anyway, so I find it all right. But, you know, if if you don't have that kind of thing set up or you just prefer, you know, a nicer way of looking at a canine, it is, is great for that. Um, but, yeah, I... I I find weirdly enough, I uh, I struggle to change my ways. I can't use VS Code because I'm too into Vim. I can't use K9s because I'm too into kubectl. So yeah, that's that's a me problem more than anything. You know that you can get um, Vim key bindings for VS yeah, Code. Yeah, I've tried it. It's still not quite yeah, right. That's what I do. <laughs> I've, I've tried it. I've just gone. Right. Mm, it's still it's still not quite. There's bits that I'm missing with it. So I just go. You know what? I'll just I'll go I'll go back to Vim. So yeah, can't help <laughs> it. I'm, I'm I'm too wedded to it now. The, wor- the worst thing actually is it. If you start using Control S in VS Code to save things, um, and then you try using that command line Vim, it it basically it does something weird to the terminal, <laughs> uh, and you have to do so. I can't remember the details. Control Q. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you're you're just you're nothing like the keyboard doesn't work and stuff. So, <laughs> so frustratingly, that is not a Vim issue. That's actually a Bash issue oh, okay. or a shell issue. Right, right. Um, so Control S stops the stream and it's from when it used to be a teletype right <laughs> yeah uh, and control q means resume <laughs> nice yeah that is a that that is a, a a linux thing that i learned i want to say 10 years ago and every time i do it i go oh damn it i'd forgotten about, <laughs> <laughs> forgotten about that so yes, it's it's a thing. I mean, it, it's it's not it's not it's the sort of thing where if you don't know what it is, it literally, like you said, it literally looks like your session's just hung. Yeah, you know, and it's like why why is this why is this not working? It should just be working anyway. For me, it only happened when I started using VS Code with the Vim key bindings. <laughs> <laughs> just a quick shout out as well to Steve. Um, your blog post you did about puppet you sent to me is really useful so put a link in the show notes to that that really helped me no worries at all yeah it's it, it's i mean it's a couple of years old now um but yeah i mean you know puppet's been around long enough that a lot of it's not changed significantly that there's been a few things in the past I'm, I'm trying to think what the name of it is now but there was something that changed a few years ago in terms of how you define things that's Hero. the one yeah i forgot what its na- name is but yeah i mean that here is really interesting from that perspective. And that's where you can like define variables and stuff, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. I think, isn't yeah. it? And it's kind of familiar because it's YAML. <laughs> so if you're familiar with Ansible. Um, a, so a couple of things that I just, um, with Puppet, I, I just wanted to say if you're using it with NFS mounts, well, this was true when I last used it, which was about nine years ago now. Um, be careful with NFS mounts. That's all I'm going to say. 
<laughs> is that when you delete a load of stuff? But. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I was trying not to mention that I mean, PTSD or something. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a good thing. It's not recorded, and everyone can listen back to that. Oh, oh wait, no, never mind. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, on on the note of uh, of automation orchestration uh, with uh, with with Puppet, uh, I'm going to move rapidly away uh, and uh, talk a little bit about. Um, some stuff that I've been doing just recently with uh, Proxmox. So if you listen to any other IT podcasts, particularly anything that does talks about self-hosting, uh, I'm particularly shouting out the uh, self-hosted show at this point. Um, they will talk about Proxmox like it is the new messiah and it is the thing to run all your hosting on. Um, for those that haven't come across it before, uh, but are aware of things like uh, ESXi or vCenter from VMware, uh, Proxmox is some is very very similar in in visual kind of the way of looking at it. So uh, it's a it, it basically it's a full a dedicated Linux machine that turns your entire host into a hypervisor. And I am using that at home uh, for my home lab. So I used to have uh, a desktop machine that I would run uh, a, an Ubuntu server image on it and would then run loads of vagrant stuff in it and then over time that turned into loads of docker containers and then yeah it kind of got all a bit complicated and messy and then and then on one fateful occasion the magic smoke left the uh, <laughs> left the power supply and that desktop machine died um uh one of my former colleagues and colleague again um nick who's been on this podcast in the past uh said that he bought some thin thin client machines because a lot of the thin client machines nowadays are actually reasonably powerful boxes you know they've got like eight gig of ram sometimes 16 gigs of ram they've quite often got i5s sometimes even i7 processors in them um, and for a home lab uh, i've got i bought two of them uh, less than 300 less than 300 pounds for both of them together and they it was two machines with 16 gig of ram in each and an i5 processor so i've put them into my comms rack so I, it's a little bit odd for a home lab um i actually have so for a, any sort of lab i i bought these two machines to go in that was small enough to fit into a comms rack um that i have in my garage i had some cat six or cabling run about two years ago now. Um, and so I have these two machines and you're supposed to run, you're supposed to run, if you're going to do them as HA, which is what I wanted them for, you are supposed to have a third node. Uh, so I actually have a Raspberry Pi acting as what they call a Q device. Um, and effectively that just provides the extra vote uh, in the case of needing quorum between the th between the two devices and effectively the reason why i set this up is because i run home assistant uh, and it's not quite at the point of if you listen to for example uh, chris fisher from any of the jupiter broadcasting shows uh, he has got his entire life orchestrated with home assistant uh, he walks into his uh, into his uh, rv and his lights come on and he can see whether someone's been outside his you know any of his motion sensors outside have been triggered and he knows how much speed uh, what his internet bandwidth is like and all of his ho all anything that you can have automated he's got automated i'm not quite at that point yet uh, but the couple of bits that i do have the main one is that um, my son has a heated blanket on his bed that he turns on and then falls asleep and it doesn't turn itself off. So I have an automation that turns that off for him. And if that isn't on something highly available, I'm going to be in big trouble <laughs> with my wife because my son will wake up sweating in the middle of the night and then it will yep. be my fault. Um, but yeah, so I've got that partially so that I can have some stuff to do home lab stuff with, you know, experiments and test stuff out. I have a Unify switch as well so that runs in proxmox the, the the management console runs runs in there as well but i just wanted to say it's, it's a really nice system it i wouldn't quite go as far as to kind of wax lyrical on a podcast for overly long or repeatedly about it it's probably the last time i'm going to mention proxmox but um i've been really impressed with it um it's it's quite straightforward setup it is an open core product 
So there is a, a nag screen that comes up pretty much constantly and you can't do apt updates unless you explicitly go in and turn off the enterprise support repo, which is a little bit annoying. Under the surface, it is just a Debian machine with a whole load of extra packages bundled on top, but it's just really slick and really impressive. Um, and if it gets to the point where it is kind of a significant part of my um, home computing, then I'll probably end up buying it as, a, you know, buying the support package on it. But for right now, it does what I need it to do. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's um, it's really nice. It, so it's the, the two main uh, things that it does is it'll do um, QEMU, uh, hypervisor for virtual machines and LXC containers. If you want to try and shoehorn in Docker containers or um, uh, any of the other kind of container technologies, um, you it is a shoehorn in, it's not part of the UI but there are some great scripts out there to kind of help automate some of those things. Um, and then I'm running GlusterFS as a kind of, as a disk overlay to be able to migrate machines between the two two devices, which again is quite nice. Any questions? <laughs> I was going to ask what um, virtualization technology is, but you've already answered that. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Yeah. I, w- I was just going to say a couple of comments as well. Um, the place I used to work at actually had a lot of production stuff on Proxmox as well. And uh, yeah, we did a lot with it. Um, really impressed with it from that perspective. Probably not as bulletproof as if you got v- vSphere and a um, support contract there. But um, we did run into some really interesting issues sometimes. But a lot of the time it was just due to weird networking issues. Um, you know, anything where you got clustering, it's always the network. So yeah, um, unfortunately, that was always my problem to fix. <laughs> so, you know um but yeah uh did really well out of it and one of the interesting things about it as well is um you can use terraform with it as well so i've used that to do things like setting up virtual machines with cloud in it so you can actually bring up a pre-prepared template machine um similar to how you build um an ami in aws or you know similar enough ones where you're building effectively a identical image and then just configuring it on top i've done that to build things like kubernetes clusters or testing out stuff i've used proxmos a lot at home for testing stuff out for testing does cloud in it work? Well, I can test it in that scenario. Um, or something I just basically don't want anywhere near any production traffic, and not even in a non-production uh, environment. I don't want it anywhere near that. I just want to play. And if I break it, I don't want someone coming to me to say, why have you broke this up? You know? So there's there's been a few times I've used it just from them, yeah. them purposes as well. And it's given how quick it is to set up on a, on a spare machine. It's really useful from that perspective as well. Yeah, I know that, the, 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 the walkthrough that I followed to get GlusterFS set up, because again, that's not quite out of the box um, to do GlusterFS, but the, the walkthrough that I followed was actually running on uh, inside uh, a VirtualBox mm. machine. So they, they used VirtualBox to kind of show how to set it up. But yeah, um, I mean, literally the installation was probably 20 minutes to get to get both to, to do both virtual machines side by side. Um, and yeah, it's just really straightforward. Uh, I've been really impressed. Probably the biggest niggle that I've had so far has been where I want to use um, VLANs on my machine. And to do VLAN tagging, you need to understand how Linux does yeah. VLANs. But that's not that's not end of the world stuff. It's just once you, you need to kind of get to the point where you realize that's what it's doing and then fix that rather than anything else. So going back to cluster, the cluster FS, what are you doing? So are you running two VMs with it, the sharing data between them? Is that like syncing them or something? Sorry. Did I miss? No. So I'm using cluster FS in the same way that you might use NFS, for example, to provide a shared file system between the two boxes. Okay. And effectively what's happening between the two machines is that when you write to one side of the file system, um, it syncs over, uh, in theory, you're supposed to use a dedicated network interface. Again, these are thin client machines with yeah. one network interface, so it's just over the same nick. But yeah, so you write on one, and it then performs the same write on the other machine. And so that gives you, it's not it's not backup, but it's just like something, it means you can migrate from A to B. Does it When it commits, does it wait for it to write to like, 
acknowledge it right or not? I don't know because I don't. Th- so I don't think you're supposed to use it for stuff that's changing on both machines at the same time. Yeah. So I'm using it purely for the live migrate functionality so that I write to stuff on node A and then if node A dies, it will appear, it will be on node B ready for the live migration to occur or for the HA to go, ah, Mm -hmm. that thing's not here yet. I think by default, doesn't it use something called DRBD by default, Proxmox? Uh, Direct something block device? Uh, Mm, I don't know i didn't spot that so that's something we're gonna have to go and go and have a look at again this is i think some documentation i read over 10 years ago so it might (laughs) might have changed by now good i was gonna say the whole q node stuff um i've i've used cluster uh sorry start again i've used proxmox in terms of clustering but that's been with actual nodes how difficult is it to get one of them q nodes and does it actually do anything other than just run a binary or something uh so it's in debian packages um so literally all i did was spin up a raspbian install sorry raspberry pi os install on uh, a raspberry pi 3 uh frankly i could have done it on something lower but i got rid of all of my stuff earlier and so the raspberry pi 3 is literally just plugged into the same network you can do it on so one of the things it does say is that it's not it doesn't need to be it's not latency sensitive so as long as effectively what happens is if it can see host a but not host b then it tells host a that it's got its extra votes yeah so it becomes core that that's the ha primary but yeah so there's you, you need to install a package on the two proxmox nodes you install a package on the raspberry pi os machine uh, and then from the one of the two proxmox nodes you run a command from the command line uh, to basically say you have got a q device which is on this ip address yeah, that's interesting and it, it's designed for effectively this situation specifically. You've got two nodes, so you haven't got three. It really wants three to make sure you don't get split split, split brain. So if you had four nodes, you would also run a queue device. If you had six, you would run a queue device. Or when you're getting to the two, to the four, six devices, you would just give one of the nodes an extra vote. Yeah, it's really just for that that one case where it's two devices. Yeah. Really, that makes sense. But yeah, I, as I said, I've just been really impressed with it. Um, there's, uh, th- I found a website which is uh, has got a whole load of helper scripts, so it'll do stuff like you know, hit, uh, you want uh, the only downside to it is it's all an awful lot of curl pipe to bash, which just makes my insides. <laughs> quiver a little bit but uh and, and what's worse is you curl pipe to get to bash and the first thing it does is it sources from a pipe to from a curl as well <laughs> so but it's all curling from github so i there's not a lot you can do about it if you want the functionality it gives you but the other option is is to write a whole load of Terraform or Ansible or something else to talk to it. And for stuff that I am just playing around the edges of at the moment, it's still a little bit, that seems a little bit yeah. too much um, like hard work for day zero on something that is for home lab stuff and not for work stuff. But I'll get there eventually, I'm sure. <laughs> also shout as well, doing the self-hosted thing i i ran up um the jellyfin challenge and i'm basically using jellyfin now rather than um plex really good really do it and they were recommending i think one comment would show it was they were wrecking borg base to do their backups and i'm just using that that's really easy to set up 
as well to do the backups of the my configs and stuff and everything the database for yeah backing up my um jellyfin stuff and all the containers and stuff i've got around base that's i'm really impressed with borg base because you you get 10 gigabyte i think it's like might i think it's like two gig or something you get for free and that's enough to me to back up my configs and stuff and the the date has a bit of spare time i'm also recommend if bit warden if you haven't redone it if you're still using LastPass, definitely make the move to it. I've, I love Bitwarden now compared to, and I pay for it, so I'm happy to. So it's better than, yeah, once using LastPass, it's made that effort jump. So if we are endorsing stuff, uh, I will also endorse Bit, Bitwarden. Uh, I use Bitwarden, uh, the hosted version, using Vault Warden as my server component. And yeah, it's great. Um, the only reason that I'm using Vault, if I have to be entirely honest with you, the only reason that I'm using Vault Warden over Bitwarden hosted services is that I wanted to have, I wanted to store TOTP seeds uh, and I wanted to be able to do that for all of my family members. And to do that, I need, I was, I would be having to pay some extortionate amount of money. Uh, and I just, I, I was just really frustrated. Um, so, so the way that I store my passwords is that I have got, uh, so um, using the Bitwarden terminology, I have an organization that I store all of my passwords in. I have an organization that I store all my wife's passwords in. I have an organization that my son stores all his passwords in. I have an organization that my daughter stores all her passwords in. I have an organization for my aunt. <laughs> I have an organization for um, stuff that, my wife and I need to share because it's fam- it's household stuff that my children shouldn't see. So that's things like um, the password for the router, for example, so that I can cut off their internet connection. <laughs> <clears throat> but then there's also one that has got the um, credentials for things like um, Netflix so that the kids can get access to that. And so I share stuff with people based on that. And when you're getting to that number of organizations, again, paying for that with Bitwarden is, it's not obscenely expensive. And I realize that I'm in a very privileged position because of the fact that I know how to host this stuff. But when I saw that there was Vault Warden, which was a Docker-based container that I could just run I know that you can also run it in Kubernetes if you are that way inclined and you want to run it for your organization. But so... I run it for for me, and I, as I said, there's four users of that service and ten organisations in there. Um, because my wife and I, effectively, I'm using it as a folder structure, which is probably not the best way of doing it. But so, I have a folder that is for me. I have a folder that is there for my wife. My wife and I can access each other's folders. Uh, I have a folder that is there that my wife cannot access because it is to do with work stuff i have my children can access their own folders but my wife and i can both access their folders my aunt i can access all of her stuff she cannot access any of my stuff it's that kind of way that i'm working with it so anyway so yes strongly would endorse uh, vault warden for Bitwarden. um the only frustration with that is if you if your employer also uses Bitwarden, the web extension or add-on depending on which browser you're using um cannot use multiple repositories whereas the desktop client can and the other thing that i have found really frustrating having moved from a company that uses macs to a company that uses linux machines is that the um the uh, application for linux cannot use any sort of biometric authentication which is a real bind. And I really hate the fact I have to use a password every time I log into it. But these things happen. Um, so yeah, so strongly endorse that. The other thing that I have started using that I would also strongly endorse is Tailscale. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I have previously run all sorts of different VPN products. Um, I remember speaking enthusiastically about the, uh, the Streisand project that let you run up all sorts of IPSEC and OpenVPN products and um, shadow socks and uh, uh, L2TP VPN. It would run all of them. 
and but it meant exposing sockets through to your home network and I don't do that anymore. I ran Nebula for a while and whilst there is still a very good use case for Nebula and I would heartily consider using that for a corporate network, Tailscale has the definite advantage in that you just click on a link and it authenticates you and gives you access to your network and the free version gives you three users, which again, I'm not using that. I'm just using it for my stuff because my family don't know, wouldn't know what they're doing with the VPN. And the longer that they can stay with that mentality, the the (laughs) better. One less thing to support for your family. (laughs) Well, the, the worrying thing for me with both of my kids watching so many YouTube videos is that they keep thinking that the only reason for a VPN product is to circumvent regional geolocks. And I keep having to explain that that's not the reason to use a VPN and have sent the link to the Tom Scott video about what VPNs do to my son about four times now, and he still doesn't get yeah. why I, I send him to that video probably because it's not, it's not 15 seconds long, <laughs> which is about what, or, or about a game that he's interested in, you know, cause he watched those for like, anyway, I'm waffling again. <clears throat> no, and he got DNS support as well, which is really, uh, yeah. So weirdly, I still have VPS that I, pay for to host my blog and things like that on. Um, and uh, I also use that to front access to some services that I run inside my home network. And I provide all the access to that over Tailscale. So my VPS is on my Tailscale network and it can access a very small number of HTTP or HTTPS services that live inside my home network um, to expose those to the internet. Home Assistant being one of them. So it means I'm not opening up a port out to the internet, but I also have some authentication on my VPS that stops you being able to access certain things without needing, without having um, the right password passwords to get into it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've got I've got a slight homegrown WireGuard implementation. I'm I'm starting to think maybe at some point I might just try this out rather than doing that. But it's you know. It works for now. One day I'll probably change. Yeah. The, the, the thing that I found that made the shift for me was when I set my aunt who lives in London. So that's, you know, four hour journey away from here. She has a, a Chromebook and a printer that previously did Google Cloud Print. Uh, and Google Cloud Print is a thing that died in 2016, 2017-ish, something like that. And so I set her up with a Cups print server and stuck Nebula on it. Uh, and then the certificate authority that I used on my VPS to mint her certificate for that Cups server expired and I had to basically post her a new SD card for the Raspberry Pi cup server that she had because I couldn't manage her cup server anymore. And that was very frustrating. And with Tailscale, you don't have that problem because with Tailscale, if you've got something that you cannot easily get to, you go into the web interface and you check the box that says disable key expiry. Ah. Uh, and it's also a, uh, a setup flag on the machine uh, that says this is a an exit node and it's a flag that says I can I can access these routes and then in the web interface you say these routes that are being offered are accepted uh, into the cluster. And then from the other end node, you say, I want to use the exit node over there. So if I were to go, so if I wanted to make it so that I could access the printer that's in my house from wherever I am, I turn on the routing, the routing statement 
for my phone. If I want to use, if I'm in a place that I'm not comfortable with who's potentially looking at my traffic, which to be fair is not a thing that happens anymore, then, um, I go to, I go to the, the Tailscale app and I tick the box that says use the exit node. Mm. It is very, very slick. And if you want to self host, uh, the central server, it's called Headscale and the team that write tail scale offer support to the head scale people and that's an open source implementation of effectively their management api nice it is cool yes definitely and there's a hundred devices as well now yeah. isn't it they said so <laughs> that's making me think less and less about shudder and more more and more about when <laughs> yeah the, as yeah. i said the, the only thing that's putting me off recommending or endorsing um, Tailscale or Nebula for any of the work projects that I've been involved in is that enrolling devices can get complicated with Tailscale because you need to curl pipe bash on Linux boxes. You need to download and run X's on Windows. And from the Nebula perspective, it is all about certificate management. And the last thing that I want to do now is certificate management. Yeah. (laughs) But equally, I think that Nebula is really, really fast for network level stuff. Um, And you can do an awful lot of config. So Nebula was written by by Slack. So everything that runs between nodes in Slack is going over a nebula network. Um, but all of their provisioning, uh, because they they use AWS and GCP uh, and Puppet. So when they stand up a new node, uh, it self-provisions with Puppet into the cluster. So they've basically got all of the key management. And also, the, I should say, define networking, uh, which was a small startup that spun off out of Slack to manage Nebula does have something very similar to the tail scale stuff. And again, they have a hundred devices for free, but I've not really investigated that yet because just at the point when that came out, I had just switched over to tail scale. <laughs> I've got a bit more investigation on stuff to do this week by the sounds of this. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know about anyone listening, but uh, I'm definitely going to try these two things out. Um, I was just curious about with yeah. Bitwarden, can you, has it got a CLI um, client? Yes. Okay. So that potentially that can be used for like, um, you know, ops type stuff, you know, for, yes. for storing secrets and so on. I did some experimenting with this for what Linux. Uh, it's available as a snap, uh, but it's also available in other package formats as well. But the snap one was the easiest one to get started with. Um, and I had very briefly, I had a script that would return the TOTP codes for a given website when you ran the command, which turned out to not be very useful as it in the end, because it, it wasn't convenient for what we were doing uh, what I was doing rather um but yeah it's it's scriptable the one thing that I will say is that the way that the command line client is written is designed for a computer to interact with it so your collections are referred to by the guids and your organizations that the collections are part of are referred to by the guids so to find a password stored in a particular collection or a particular organization is lots of looking up GUIDs as part of that, which if you compare that to something like Secrets Manager in AWS, it's a whole world of difference because you just go, I need this secret, please. And as long as that instance role has got access to that secret, it gets access to that secret which ultimately is the reason why I didn't go down that route in the end. 
but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the command line for the CLI command is called BW. So Bravo whiskey and is 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 fine, but it just didn't serve the purpose that I needed at the time. Um, yeah, it's, it's fine. It, there's, there's nothing, there's no significant worries really with it. So with that, I think we've got to the end of another show. Um, uh, as always, I'd like to, uh, thank our co-host and my co-host i'd say it as always this is the first time i've done this for quite a while i'm going to thank my co-hosts for we've we really struggled as you probably guessed for trying to figure out the time to get back together again uh we've all kind of changed jobs or doing new things and stuff like that so um i'm really glad that everyone's kind of been able to get back into the swing of things so thank you very much for coming back together um i also want to thank dave uh who's uh gonna have a a whale of a time editing this this uh, this file. Thank you very much, Dave. It's going to have uh, to get garden shears, I think, for this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can I just say, dear listener, it, the, the, the phrase that has been, was started right at the beginning of this was, it's just like riding a bike. We've got to the end and said it really isn't. It really isn't <laughs> like riding a bike. Um, the number of things that we have got wrong and forgotten about is, is ridiculous. So, Dave, so much love to you because you're just... I don't know. I don't know how you have the patience to put up with us. Anyway, yeah. So um, uh, Dave uh, is is amazing to us, uh, and he, like us, are members of the Other Side Podcast Network. Uh, and if you want to find out more about that, go to otherside.network for more details about the network and the other member podcasts. Uh, I'd like to thank our amazing patrons who are Andamo, Dave, Maha, Mike, Stu, and Stuart. You you keep the uh, the show on the road, <laughs> you guys. So thank you very much. Hang on. What we supposed to have been doing stuff to say thank? Oh right, yeah. Sorry, guys. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I tell you what. The next time you see us, we'll, we'll buy you a drink or something. Thank you very much to make up for the, the six months. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if you want to send any feedback or questions, um, possibly telling us that we need to do another one of these very soon, um, send it to mail at admin admin you can also join our Telegram group um, to ask the same questions or say the same things. Links in our show notes, and you can also find that link on our website, which is, again, adminadminpodcast.co.uk. So with that, I think we're done. Thank you very much, everyone. Yep. See you the next time. Thank you, everyone. Cheers, Dan. Bye-bye. Bye. been listening to a member of the Other Side Podcast Network. Find more about our shows at otherside.network. Network.